I also have a bit of uh, a bit of whiskey. You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to London Philosophy Talk. I'm Florian Steinberger of the Philosophy Department at Birkbeck College, University of London, and I'm also director of the philosophy program at University of London Worldwide. There is, of course, a real dearth of podcasts out there, so I figured that my department, the Department of Philosophy here at Birkbeck, should bravely jump into the breach to fill the void. Now, if it came down to only my waffling, that would hardly be a service to humankind. Fortunately, though, I have my brilliant colleagues, and in this first series of podcasts, I speak to one of them in each episode to talk about a range of different topics in philosophy. In this episode, our second episode, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Halvard Lillehammer, who has written widely in areas of philosophy such as ethics, Metaethics, political philosophy, aesthetics, and the history of ethical thought. And in this episode, we talk about trolley problems and what we can learn about the nature and the status of ethical intuitions when it comes to constructing and testing ethical theories. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay. So uh, we begin. So I will have introduced you properly. I'll, I'll, I'll have recorded that separately. So I don't. I'm not going to do the whole sing all your praises now in front of you because that's just good un- unseemly. Yeah, no, that would be that would be that would be the kiss of death. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Here I am with Halvard. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> We're um, convening here, obviously socially distanced, on what turns out to be a, a very warm and sunny spring evening to talk about trolley problems and, uh, moreover, the questions that it raises about um, the nature of ethical intuitions and the role that they play in ethical theorizing. And the starting off point and the center of our discussion is going to be Judith Jarvis Thompson's paper, 2008 paper in Philosophy and Public Affairs, Turning the Trolley. I suppose we, as, as a proper to, as a um, terminological clarification to say that a trolley is the American word for a tram. So it's nothing more exotic than a, than a tram. But I suppose when you speak of tram problems, it just sort of sounds like a uh, well, it, it sounds less intellectually stimulating. It sounds more like the sort of excuse you get for coming to, to work late. Um, so we're going <laughs> to stick to talking about trolley problems. And Thompson's paper invites us to revisit Philippa Foote's early paper, the well, earlier paper, 1976 paper, The Problem of Abortion and the, Doctrine of, and the Doctrine of Double Effect, in which she states the trolley problem. Why don't you kick us off? Okay, so um, in... Um in Foote's original paper, which was actually published in 1967, she was primarily concerned with, at least initially, the problem of abortion and in what uh, situations it might be permissible uh, for someone to take the life of another human being, in this case, uh, a fetus. And she considered various explanations of when that might be permissible, including 
a very uh, long-standing and important uh, distinction between intending a harm and merely foreseeing that harm. Uh, this was a, uh, a distinction that how many people have used to uh, justify killing other people, for example, in self-defense. So in this paper, Foote rejected uh, this distinction, known as the doctrine of double effect. And one of the ways in which he went about rejecting it was to construct some thought experiments, uh, which was supposed to show us that this doctrine was not going to uh, be able to explain to us uh, what goes wrong when we kill someone wrongly, even in self-defense. And um, the trolley problem is a problem that she thought up, and it's a problem of explaining why it is we think that in some cases, when you do something that harms others, uh, say by killing them, uh, it's wrong to do so, whereas in other cases, you do something that harms them, i.e. killing them, it may not be wrong to do so, even though the outcome is exactly the same. So in the famous trolley case, or the basic version of the trolley case, you have a, a trolley or a tram hurtling down a a track and it's about to kill five people and you have the option to turn it onto a side track in which it will merely kill one and the thought is supposed to be that most people and in fact it's true that most people uh, who are asked about this think that it's permissible for you to switch uh, to kill the one so it looks like uh, we have a, a piece of datum uh, but that's not enough to get us the trolley problem. The trolley problem is that there are other cases in which the structure of the situation looks to be very similar, that you can do one thing, uh, which will uh, mean that five people will die, and you can do another thing, which means that one per person will die, but it's not okay to do it. And one example that Foote used in her original paper was that of a, of a surgeon in a hospital who could uh, save the life of five patients who needed various types of uh, operations to save bits of their body, like their organs. And the way the doctor could do this was to find uh, someone else in the hospital who had a matching organ and kill that person and distribute the organ to those five people. The intuitive thought is, and most people agree with this, that that's not something that the doctor should do. But of course, in terms of the outcome, it's exactly the same. You uh, save five lives and you lose one life in the process. That's how you get the trolley problem. Over time, the case of the surgeon has sort of disappeared into the, uh, into the background. And so now people formulate the trolley problem mainly with respect to different versions of the trolley. So the classic ways of discussing it nowadays uh, have been for quite some time is to take the traditional trolley case, which I just explained, and compare it to another one. In this case, the trolley is hurtling down the track towards the five. But instead of being a driver on the train who can switch the car to a sidetrack to kill the one, you're someone who's walking across a bridge uh, that crosses the track. And one thing you can do is you can find a very large person on that bridge and push them into the track to stop the train, but they're killing that person. And most people who are asked about that case, it appears, think that that's not something you should do. But when you think about it, the outcome is exactly the same. You save the five people, uh, you lose one life, which is the one. So the question then is, that's the trolley problem. Why should we think it's okay to switch in the basic case, but not okay to push the person in the footbridge case? That basically defines the trolley problem and various things that philosophers do to respond to the trolley problem is to offer various explanations of how this can be so. Right. Great. So, I mean, Foote offers one such solution, which is the uh, 
subject of much of the beginning of Thompson's paper. And what she tries to do is she tries to take these two intuitions that most of us have in these two cases. In the first case, where the where we put ourselves in the position of the driver heading down the heading down the track and finding ourselves in the situation where we can either let the trolley go ahead down the track killing five or to divert it off to the right let's say to then go off and kill one person in which case most most people find that it'd be uh, morally permissible it'd be morally okay to divert the train to the right to rather kill one rather than five and the other case uh, which you of which you gave several versions um, in which for example when it comes to pushing a man off of a bridge in order to well sacrifice the man but to stop the trolley and thereby to save the five people that are on the tracks in that case most people's intuition is that it's not morally permissible that one must not do that and so the question is well what sort of general principles can we offer and foot offers two such principles she basically says in the first case what's happening or the principle that applies in the first case is what she calls the killing five versus killing one principle so in other words one must not kill five if one can instead kill one where the emphasis is on the fact that either way we're killing somebody we're just comparing numbers as it were and now the question is well what's the relevant difference to let's say the uh, poor uh, bulky person on the bridge um, well, the relevant difference, according to Foote, is that in this case, the choice that we find that we find ourselves in is one where we're choosing between letting five people die versus killing one. And there, the principle that is supposed to explain our intuition that it's not okay to push the person off the bridge is the principle that says that it's not okay to kill one, even if killing one person is required in order to to save five people. Rather, what our intuition seems to suggest we ought to do is to let five people die, not to intervene, and thereby also not to kill the poor uh, fat bystander. So, do you, do you want to say a few things about the background of that? What 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 sort of considerations underpin these two principles? So, so a way of summing up the kind of the basic idea behind Foot's um, initial explanation is is to think about the distinction between killing versus letting die and the thought that killing is worse all other things being equal than letting die so it's not that it's okay to let die but it's worse to kill than to let die and the way that uh, foot initially articulated this because she thought she could offer an explanation of that too not she didn't just state it she tried to come up with an explanation is that if you think about the duties we have as moral agents to each other, some of those duties are what you call positive duties, and some of them are negative duties. The positive duties we have is to help other people. Right. And we do have such duties. Uh, so the person who is uh, um, on the bridge has a duty to help the five. But we also have negative duties, which is duties not to harm other people. Uh, and the person on the bridge has a duty not to harm the person standing on the bridge. And foot made the claim that in general positive duties are trumped by negative duties so the du negative duties that we have towards others are stronger than positive duties at least given certain proportions so you may think that okay if the choice is between like a million people and one maybe 
there would be some discussion or maybe a bit overruled. But when you have the small numbers like one to five, the thought is intuitively our negative duties not to kill outweigh our positive duties uh, to help. And that's why the person on the footbridge, although Foot didn't discuss that case, uh, has a negative duty not to kill the person, the large person, which is trumping the positive duty to, ha- to save the five. And so you can explain why he or she shouldn't do that uh, while it's okay for the driver to switch because either way, you're going to be infringing on a negative duty, the duty to not kill five and the duty not to kill one. And in that case, it just becomes a matter of the numbers. And that's the explanation that Foote gave. And there is some intuitive uh, support to that idea that we have stronger negative duties than positive duties. Because if you think about it, if our positive duties were as strong as our negative duties, then morality would be incredibly demanding. Because if our duties to help other people were as strong as our duties not to hurt them, we would constantly have to be thinking about all the things we could do to help people all the time. And we'd be spending all our time all our time doing things like making sure that people weren't lied to as opposed to making sure that we didn't lie to them, for example. Right. Right. That's a nice example. Good. So what Thompson now does at this point is she formulates, again, a slightly different version of the trolley problem, which seems to challenge the letting five die versus killing one principle. That is the principle, again, that tells us that when we're giving a choice, when we're given a choice between either um, not intervening and hence letting five die, and intervening and uh, killing one, thereby uh, violating our negative duties towards the large person on the bridge. In this case, we ought to the 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 negative duties take precedence, and we ought to let the five die. The case that she describes is very much like the first case, only we're now positioned not in the driver's seat of the trolley. Rather, we're a bystander who, by uh, some unexplained happenstance, finds himself or herself in front of a lever and is in a position to pull the lever and thereby to redirect the trolley in such a way that it doesn't go down the track that it was supposed to go down, uh, that, that it was head, heading down, in, uh, where it would have killed five. And instead, you can direct it off to the right as the driver would have, thereby killing one. And she claims that most people's intuitions, and I, uh, I take it that there's a, a good amount of empirical data on that, um, most people's intuitions is in this case that it is permissible for us to pull the lever and to choose the life of the one person or choose killing the one person or yeah, killing the one person over uh, letting the five die. So that seems to um, put into question the principle that was supposed to explain the initial difference in in our intuitions. So first of all, is, is there any? Uh, I mean, m- m- most people's intuitions, I think, go in that direction, and and I think I'm right to say that there's a good amount of empirical evidence here, right? Yes, and it's important to know exactly what Thompson asserted, uh, which he first did not in the paper we're discussing, but in a, in a paper that she wrote some 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 years before, uh, where she said that. What we what we react to in the case of the bystander, or 
in a, in a version of the example she gave earlier, which involved the passenger. So you can imagine that the driver is driving the train and you're a passenger and then the driver sees this dilemma happening and then they, you know, they freak out and pass out of sheer fright of the matter. And there you are as a passenger and now it's your turn, but you didn't start the train. So you're a little bit like the bystander. And then the worry is that if you do nothing, you're just letting these people die. But if you actually switch, you're killing someone and that seems to count or at least put some pressure on the idea that, that Foote's uh, explanation between killing and letting die was going to, to save us and try to explain this thing. And here, the important thing is that Thompson says it's it's a question of permissibility, not obligation. So the empirical yeah. evidence we have is that there is quite a lot of people, not universal, but there's quite a lot of agreement that, that it's okay even for a, a bystander to switch. But you, you rarely get like a hundred percent agreement uh, on this matter. And even in a, in a class, um, I've been teaching this matter for, you know, several decades. And there's usually someone in the class who thinks that even in the bystander case, uh, it's not okay to switch. So one of the things we have to think about in the case of this trolley problem is that we not, not only do we need to find an explanation of what we think, ultimately we also want an explanation of why it is that some people think some things and other people don't think the, the same thing because of course suppose you have 20 people who do, do not who deny it's okay and 80 people who think it's okay we need some story about what goes on with the 20 percent ultimately right is it that they don't understand the case or you know what, whatever it is but let's assume that that uh that the 80 percent in this case or whatever it is are right that it's okay to switch in the bystander case then then the challenge is this of course the bystander case is a different case than the original case but if we're looking for an explanation as to what's wrong in one case and what's right in another case, we want something that is not going to be falling down on just changing the examples so little, right? Because all that changes from the basic case to the bystander case is that you didn't start the train, right? So the thought is, if we have a principle that explains the basic case but can't explain the bystander case, it's not a very good principle because it has virtually no explanatory generality. You want something that captures relatively similar cases so the the, the key thing and the and, the, and this was the brilliant thing that that thompson did with the bystander case that he found a case that was so similar to the original one and said look you're killing letting die story doesn't work here now what's your story and in some sense that sets us on the on the path towards all these various types of of explanations as to what goes on in these cases where the thought is what we're trying to come up with is some explanation that doesn't fall down just by tweaking the case a, just a little bit. Right. Now, in, in this paper, she then goes on, referring to a, a graduate student of hers, um, Alex Friedman, um, to develop a, a, a further variant of the bystander case, which uh, she develops in a rather ingenious way in order to argue that perhaps Foote's solution works after all. Right? That her appeal, that her whole story about Negative, uh, negative duties trumping positive duties, and therefore the relevance of the distinction between letting die and killing turns out to be pretty close to watertight. So the, 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 the variant of that thought experience, uh, the, uh, experiment that she proposes is the following, right? We again have the bystander case. We again find ourselves next to the track. And this time we have three choices rather than two. We have the lever in front of us. This time, the lever we might imagine is, is sort of set to the middle. We could move it to the left or we could pull it to the right. If we pull it to the right, 
the same thing would happen as did in the previous case. That is to say, we would divert the trolley. It would go off to the right rather than go, um, rather than continuing along straight down the track and killing five. Um, it would kill the one person. But now the, the further thing that we could do is to throw the switch to the left, throw the lever to the left, thereby diverting the trolley in such a way that it comes and kills ourselves. So we can sacrifice ourselves this time. That's one of the options rather than just sacrificing the other person in order to save the five people on the track. And she now goes on to develop an argument to the effect that neither of the, uh, neither of the two latter options are, in fact, permissible ones. Reading it, I, I thought that was rather surprising and rather ingenious, the way she, she uh, develops that argument. Uh, do you want to take us through it, Halbert? Well, let's just think about what's happening. So we're trying to come up with an explanation uh, that captures a relevant range of cases that are similar to each other. So we started with, this, with the first case, which was the switch case, and then we moved to the bystander case, and that apparently created trouble for Foote because it seemed like she got the wrong answer. And so the thought is, maybe she didn't get the wrong answer, and maybe we can... Give, give evidence for that by tweaking the case a little bit more. And the tweak we make, tweak we make now is that we create a, a possibility space that doesn't just have two options, which is kill the five or kill the one, but the third option is kill yourself. And the thought is then that the option of killing yourself puts pressure on the idea that it's okay for you to kill the one. Because if you can kill yourself or another person, the thought is, according to this argument, you should kill yourself. So it's not okay for you to kill the other one. That's the thought. Now, if it's not okay for you to kill the other one, you should kill yourself, that puts pressure on the idea that Foot was wrong in the first place. Right? right. It puts pressure on the idea that those, whatever percent they are, who respond to the initial bystander case by saying, oh, yeah, that's a problem for Foot because it's okay to switch, that they got it wrong, that that intuition isn't right. reliable. But in order to, to, to eke out that that intuition wasn't reliable, we needed to tweak the case a little bit more to see that, ah, we should, perhaps we shouldn't trust that intuition after all. And now we have a story why it was that people thought that bystander was right, but perhaps it wasn't. We have a story about why, which we can tell by invoking this slightly more complicated case. So we can see that, ah, what goes wrong is that in the bystander case, all we're focusing on now is the numbers. We're forgetting about the relationship between yourself and killing another person. And to bring to light the, the importance of killing another person, uh, we, we just bring in this third case where you kill yourself. So the end result of that is that Foot wasn't wrong, if this is correct, Foot wasn't wrong in her killing, letting die distinction at all. So even though in the bystander case, it's true that by switching your killing, and by not doing anything and merely letting die, because killing is worse than letting die. You shouldn't switch. Right. Yeah. Um, no, exactly. And, and so that, as we'll go on to discuss, that raises some really interesting questions about what ethical intuitions are, because what we're being invited to uh, imagine here is that what's going on is that in the first case, we have a particular 80% of us, whatever it might be, have a particular intuition when it comes to the bystander case. But that ethical intuition must be the sort of thing that can't be incredibly reliable. You know, it, it might not be completely whimsical either, but it's not. It, it's at least something that, upon further consideration, 
we will come to correct. And so that raises the question, well, what are ethical intuitions such that so that they, they have these features of being of being correctable, being being susceptible of being corrected in that kind of way? And what is their proper role in, in ethical theorizing? So I want to put a flag here and then return to that in, in, in a little bit because that's a, a central issue that's being raised here. Um, before we go there, though, I wanted to quickly go over, you summarized it really nicely, and it's a, it's a, it's a complicated piece of argumentation, which you, which you um, summarized really succinctly, but I wanted to pick up one bit of the argument, which is that in order for Thompson's argument to go through, in order for it to be, in, in order for the vindication of foot solution to, to really work, it will have to be the case that an analogous trick cannot be performed when it comes to the initial driver's case. Right. We, we moved, if you'll remember, we moved from the initial case where we were in the position of the driver and we had a choice to make whether to continue down the track or to divert the trolley from the driver's perspective. And there, presumably, it was a choice between either killing five or killing one. And it was there. It's clear. It's, it's just a matter of numbers. Then we, we looked at the bystander case, which looks very, very different. Simply, we're now occupying the position of the bystander rather than the driver. The, 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 the worry there was that perhaps the distinction between letting die and killing wasn't really robust enough to withstand that example. And what Thompson then goes on to give is, is in a, as you were just saying, is to give a variant of that in order to show that, after all, our initial intuitions when it comes to the bystander case are in fact erroneous, and we should correct them upon further reflection on this more elaborate case that that shows that our intuitions were perhaps misguided in that case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But none of that works if it now turns out that we could run an analogous argument with respect to the initial case, where we're again in the driver's perspective, and where now too we could imagine face a tripartite choice between either going down straight down the track and, and killing the five, going, let's say, to the right to kill the one, or perhaps to divert the trolley off to the left into a wall, um, thereby saving the others but sacrificing ourselves. And the question is, why in that case shouldn't we equally be led to the, to the conclusion that the only permissible thing that we can do is to go straight ahead and to, and to uh, kill the five? Because neither of the other options sacrificing the other person or sacrificing oneself are actual options. So why, why exactly does that not work? Well, I guess the, the thing about the, um, the driver is that he's going to kill either way. Right. So it's, uh, the, there, there isn't this, even if we think that the, the driver in the, in the, in the, in the three option case, uh, is required to self-sacrifice, like the bystander in the three-option case is required to self-sacrifice. That doesn't put the same pressure on uh, the second option of killing the one as it does in the bystander case, uh, because we, you don't have in the in the driver case any distinction between killings and lettings die. Right. So, in some sense, although there is a further factor, which is the option of self-sacrifice. We don't have that in combination with something else, which is a distinction between killing and letting die. That's a crucial structural difference between the two cases. It is an interesting question, though, whether we should 
Thompson thinks we should, accept the idea that self-sacrifice does operate in the same way in those two cases. Um, there is something additional added to the ethical complexity of the situation in both the bystander case and the driver case by introducing self-sacrifice, which is the idea that it is required. So I think in, I don't know what people's intuitions would be on this, but I think uh, quite a lot of people will at least stop and ask what's really going on here. In some sense, it's easier structurally to comparing choosing between lives if you, you yourself is not involved than if you are involved. Yeah. Because there is always the question about to what extent do I owe my life to others in virtue of just making the world a better place? So in some sense, you know, all, this, all the moving to three from two options is in some sense very helpful to bring out what's going on in these cases. It does add a little element of complexity, which is hard to get one's head around, I think. I guess if we rejected that distinction, wow. uh, we should have to say the same thing. Or there'd be much strong, more pressure to say the same thing in both cases. Okay. So here's a way of thinking about it in terms of in terms of the details of the case. Think about the driver as a as a professional, someone whose job it is to drive the train, which is you know one way of thinking about it. You might think that in virtue of having put themselves in that situation, they've acquired an obligation not to kill other people by entering the car as the driver. So if they get into trouble and lives are at stake, you might think, well, you know, now you're on the hook. You know, in order to save lives, yours should go. But the bystander never got themselves into a situation like that, we assume, in the first place, in a voluntary way at all. They just found themselves there. So the idea that bystander is required to sacrifice their own life is prima facie less strong than the idea that driver is required to sacrifice their own life. Because driver put themselves there, whereas bystander just, as it were, found themselves there. Or to put it in language... Uh, of another philosopher who's written about this in a slightly different context, there's a sense in which bystander is kind of imposed upon by finding themselves and yeah. having to make this choice, whereas driver isn't imposed upon at all. A driver has imposed it upon <laughs> everyone that they find themselves in this situation, although that may be a little bit unfair. Right. Well, let's let's then go on and, and turn to these broader methodological questions that are raised by the paper, namely, what exactly are ethical intuitions and what should their what is their place in um, ethical theorizing what is their place in constructing and assessing ethical theories and perhaps we should, we, we could um, find our way into this topic a little bit by saying something about some of the work that has been done in empirical psychology there, thereby find our way to work our way a little bit to talk about ethical intuitions and some of the skepticism that there has been around ethical intuitions based precisely on these empirical findings. Yeah, so there is a, a now a well-established uh, part of psychology that studies um, the neuroscience of our uh, responses to moral problems, both in real life and in, in imagination. And some of that uh, science uh, is actually specifically um, targeted at trolley problems. Uh, Partly because some of the scientists who uh, created this science, including um, Joshua Green at Harvard University, uh, they started out, out as philosophy students. Yes. So they will have known the trolley problem since they were very young. <laughs> and they decided to you know, turn it into a, a real science rather than just uh, what we do. Uh, 
And one of the things they study is um, what goes on in our um, reasoning and our thoughts uh, in our brains when we respond to these cases. And so one of the things we need to define then is, you know, what is it that our reactions are like? What kind of reactions do we have when we say, uh, what do you think about the bystander case, permissible or impermissible? What do you think about the driver case, permissible or impermissible? And then you have a reaction. Uh, and the name for those reactions in that science is uh, often uh, the name intuition. Intuition in that sense is like a gut reaction, a first shot at something. Uh, what do you think about something before you've thought about it? And it's a datum epistemologically in the sense that it's a datum about what people are inclined to think. But very often when this is done in rigorous scientific testing, of course, it's what people think quickly before they've really thought about it, before they've fitted it into a, a, a philosophical theory and so on and so forth. So one way of thinking about it, these intuitions is that they're what do we think about something pre-theoretically before we tr have, have tried to sort of put all the other things we think together in a, in a system that, as it were, fits together. Yeah. So that's how intuition is thought about among this group of people. It's important to know before we go on that, of course, that's not the only way uh, or tr the traditional way in which philosophers have necessarily thought of intuitions. I mean, philosophers have often thought of intuitions in rather more uh, reflectively developed ways or ways in which it's sort of more or less, if not guaranteed and likely that they're going to be correct. So sometimes philosophers have talked historically about intuitions being the kind of things we know without having to prove them from anything. But that's not the way in which people think about intuitions uh, who do this kind of, of science. They think of them as more like the first shots we have at, at something. So your question really is, what's the status of people's first shot at something like the trolley problem? How should we treat that when we reason? Should we treat it as something we take very seriously? Should we think of it as having some prima facie credibility? Should we think of it as constraining our ethical theory? Or should we think of it as something that we can just set aside because it could just be prejudice. Right. Well, first of all, I want to refer our listeners to your paper on the epistemology of ethical intuitions, where you distinguish very carefully, I think, between five different uses of, of the term ethical intuition, because even within the philosophical literature, there's, there's some variability with respect to the use of that term. But perhaps an, an interesting question to, to ask at this point, given our discussion of Thompson's paper, is well. Let me think. Does does Thompson even use the word intuition very much? Um, in this paper, intuition is not really operative. Right. Uh, she does, in, and elsewhere in her work, have a conception of intuition. But if you think about what goes on in this paper in particular, she does have a view of what these initial reactions are and how we should treat them. So, on the one hand. It's quite clear that she thinks we should consider them seriously, because otherwise she sure. wouldn't bother to make up these th these cases. Sure. But it's not true that she uses them dogmatically, so as to think that once someone has an intuition, you should just take that as what gives you the right answer. Because after all, first of all, she first says that she used to believe that the bystander case refuted yes. foot, but then she's changed her mind which suggests that if she had the intuition that bystander refuted foot in the first place, she thinks that that intuition perhaps was not so reliable. Yeah. And secondly, towards the end of the paper, she gives some explanations as to why intuitions are sometimes not reliable, because we sometimes find that our moral judgments 
are formed in a very particularly vivid or strong way because we get very excited by something or because we're just thinking about along one track, like what are the numbers involved? If that's all we're chasing, then that's what our intuitive judgment is going to follow. Or if we get very excited about something, that's what uh, our intuitions are going to follow. So for example, just take something that has nothing to do with trolley problems. You know, What does it take to motivate someone, say, to act on a positive duty to help others? Well, one of the things that charities and other organizations do to get people to act on positive duties to help others is they make those positive duties very vivid. They give us pictures of little children or maybe suffering animals or famous people. (laughs) So they try to motivate us to think we ought to do something by giving us these vivid images that kind of trigger us in certain kinds of ways. And of course, all the time when we're making moral judgment, there are certain kinds of things like this floating around. And so we will always be to some extent prone to let our judgments be guided by them. So before we know how much to rely on a particular intuition, we need to know something about those facts. And I think that recognition is very clearly uh, present in the subtext of Thompson's paper, even though she is a philosopher who sometimes is kind of accused of being someone who kind of just thinks it all boils down to our intuitions. I think it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. Right. But so one question we can ask ourselves is, because the impression you might get from the empirical findings, given that some so many of our intuitions seem to be uh, caused or, or are in various ways manipulable, and, or at the very least are, are, are correlated with certain emotional reactions and what have you. And so the, 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 the worry might be, okay, so ethicists have been making, have been, have been relying so heavily on intuitions as the data upon which to build their ethical re, uh, theories and the evidence against which to test their theories. And perhaps this whole ed- edifice is really just built on sand because you know, these, these intuitions are, um, at least when we understand them in that way, really aren't robust enough to withstand that kind of scrutiny. Um, yeah. But so given given what you just said, given the, uh, the, the distinction that you made between the use that empirical psychologists, psychologists um, make of that term and the way that it's commonly used or <laughs> roughly used among uh, philosophers, is it just the case that the two camps are, are, are talking past one another and that the empirical findings shouldn't really worry philosophers all that much because what empirical psychologists mean by intuition is really something rather different than the sort of more cognitive, more reflective, more considered judgments that really are the basis of and central Mm. to ethical theorizing. So I think they're not talking past each other. um, Because I think the people who challenge the use of intuitions in this sort of gut feeling sense, uh, which is uh, um, appealed to by empirical psychologists, uh, they also think that these kinds of uh, distorting factors are present even in many intuitions that are a little bit more reflective. And the people who are skeptical towards that skepticism uh, in sort of in in traditional or um, conventional philosophy they say that there may be distorting factors involved in our moral judgments, even when they're not just gut reactions. But our moral reasoning, our capacity to reflect, is sufficiently robust so that we can, in principle, work our way out of it. Although, of course, we can never be absolutely sure that we've got it right, but there is better and worse. 
And so to think that we should just dish it, sort of dish it and throw it all out is too simplistic. And, and this is a very important part to add to the discussion because it just sounds like a standoff, you also have to ask the people who think that they're debunking or as it were, as it were explaining away an intuition as just distorting, where they get their confidence from that these intuitions are distorted. Because right. you can't have that confidence unless you yourself have some moral normative convictions. Right. So to give you a very good example of you that. You a benchmark against which to... Uh, exactly. So to give you an example of that outside of the trolley problem, there's been some, apparently, some, some work done about 10, 15 years ago about uh, the, the, the judgments people were prone to make in court cases, uh, how harshly they would uh, sentence people, depending on whether or not the courtroom was tidy. So they had certain kinds of judgments made in tidy, normal courtrooms, and then they had other courtrooms which were sort of full of you know, empty pizza boxes and you know, Coca-Cola cans or what have you. And it turned out, according to this experiment, which may or may not be uh, replicable or whatever, that people who were in messy rooms made harsher judgments. Right? Now, fine, let's just assume that this is robust science. Let's just assume it for the sake of argument, right? I don't know anyone who has used that data to argue that we should fill courtrooms with pizza boxes and empty Coca-Cola cans. (laughs) (laughs) So somewhere along the line, there is an implicit confidence in the idea of what is and is not a distorting factor, right? The thought is Coca-Cola cans and pizzas are things that have a causally distorting effect on people thinking straight about sentencing people, right? regardless of what we think the sentence should or should not be like. But here is the distorting factor. That's generally understood, and when that case is presented in philosophy, that is so generally understood that it's not even explained. Right? You don't even bother to explain it. Nobody says, oh, my God, you know, there's not enough empty pizza boxes and Coca-Cola cans in courtrooms. Nobody says that. Now, of course, it could be, for all we know that they should be, but that's not how it's done. So that tells us that, of course, somewhere or other, the person who is questioning intuitions must get their moral bearings. Now, one way of thinking about them getting their moral bearings, and this is a, a, a common view in, 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 in philosophy and has been for, for a long time, is that the way you get those moral bearings is you start with whatever you had, your gut reactions, your moral intuitions or whatever, and then you confront those intuitions with more and more facts about the situation in which you make them, and you see whether they sub- reflectively survive it and whether what you believe can be made coherent with all the other things you believe and then if your belief or your judgment survives it that's some evidence that it's along the wrong track the right track and if not you ditch it and sometimes we do ditch our judgments as a result of being presented with distorting factors and sometimes we keep them and sometimes you might think we do so for a very good reason for example if you if i discover that the only reason i think i should treat one of my colleagues worse than another person is that i don't like the dress that they're wearing and i've never thought about that and you point out to me that actually you just don't like that dress and i think shit that's true actually maybe i should treat them differently there's a situation in which I might be completely unaware of, you know, this, I just pick up on the fact that I don't like a certain dress. That's an irrelevant factor to whether or not I should treat my colleague well or not. In other cases, you might point out to me something that is perfectly uh, compatible with all the other things I believe, and so I hold my judgment. Right. And so we just have to work it out on a case-by-case basis. Right, so there there are probably more than, than, than the two, but there are certainly two uh, importantly different and influential 
models as to how, what structure an ethical theory might have and how we might go about constructing it. And one of which is the one that you, that you were just describing, which is sympathetic uh, roughly to the picture of ethical intuitions and their role that we were going with up until now, namely that ethical intuitions are by and large cognitive they have they have some they, they have some reflective standing they're not just gut reactions that we have um, and we use them as data points on the basis of which we try to formulate more general principles and using those general we'll test those general principles against other cases where again the benchmark will be our intuitive or perhaps more considered intuitive judgments as to what the right thing to do in those cases will be and we'll test our theory against that and we'll then enter this process of mutual adjustment between initially primarily the, the tenets of our, of our theory, the general principles of our theory. But eventually, once our theory gets more and more robust and we get more and more comf- confident in our, in our theory, it may be that when our theory sometimes makes predictions about particular cases that runs counter to our intuition, intuitive judgments, it might be that we, we might be uh, then inclined to actually revise our intuitive judgments rather than our theoretical principles, as is, is, is the case in, in Thompson's paper, right, where more reflection and more theoretical considerations lead us to revise our initial intuitive judgments. So th- th- that's the sort of reflective equilibrium story, this process of mutual adjustment and theory building on the basis of the data points that are provided by our intuitive judgments. But then there's a there's the alternative picture, which is usually associated with broadly consequentialist ethical theories. <laughs> but uh, there the picture is that at the outset, you, you determine what is the good that you're after, that you're trying to promote, whatever is of value. And you then can test particular rules and norms as to how you should act um, or acts individually, as the case may be, depending on how they promote what is of value, right? So, for example, we want um, we want to promote happiness for the greatest number, to speak with with Bentham, and so an act is going to be considered right, ethically speaking, if it does exactly that. For example, if it maximizes right, happiness for the greatest number, but the immediately the role of intuitions. Seems to seems to be entirely different, on on this sort of in this sort of good oriented story. There's no reflective equilibrium. Rather, we rather rules and norms have to earn their keep, depending on how well compliance with them um, promotes what what is good after all. And on that kind of theory, we are perhaps more likely in certain cases to run roughshod over our intuitions, and therefore we might have a tendency to downplay the significance and the reliability of intuitions. Is that right, by and large? Yes. I mean, the structure of utilitarian theory is just has, it has two parts. It has a theory about what the good things are in the world, and that's understood kind of impersonally and totally impartially, like yeah. pleasure or happiness or whatever. And then it has a structural part, which says, go ahead and promote those things. So you should the way we should go about living all other things being equal, it's just to make as much of that as possible. 
So going back to the trolley problem, in some sense, the pro trolley problem, as it were, doesn't arise in principle for this view because uh, what you should do in each case is just what saves the most people, all other things being equal. Sometimes they're not, but basically yeah. that's it. So bystanders should switch, drivers should switch, and you should push the man off the footbridge. Basically, that's what the utilitarian says. And there, so there's no the, distinction between killing and, and uh, No distinction die. between killing and letting die, no distinction between intention and foresight, at least not intrinsically. Although, of course, it might be true as a rule of thumb that by thinking in terms of killing and letting die most of the time and thinking about intention versus foresight most of the time, we'll end up producing as much of that good stuff as we can right. in the long run. So Joshua Green, one of these empirical uh, psychologists who's done work on this and who uh, has defended a broadly utilitarian view of the trolley problem, says that it's a little bit like uh, having a, a camera which has two settings. It has an automatic setting and a manual setting. And the automatic setting is sort of designed to cope with most scenarios you'll come up with, like your mobile phone when you take a picture of your mobile phone. And that goes most of the time because, oh, by and large, it'll get good pictures. But it's a heuristic. If you want absolute clear picture with you know maximum definition and the bright light if the light situation is not normal you'll have to go to manual and set all the settings to get the best possible picture so what green says is that at least that what he said when he was when he was working on this about 10 years ago is that uh, our intuitions are like the are like the automatic settings on the camera and when we reflect on it we should return to the manual settings and do the calculating reasoning which is utilitarian reasoning and we'll see that in some cases, we just have to drop the intuitions because they get it right most of the time. But in some situations, they don't get it right. In particular, in the footbridge case, they get it wrong. That would be the thought. So that's what the utilitarian will say, that uh, this whole song and dance about trying to find a principle that explains these variations on a trolley problem is just a way of get, getting, getting, getting hold of a psychological, which is here are the rules of thumb we've developed for whatever reasons to cope with the reality more or less well from a moral point of view. And that's all very interesting. But actually, when it comes to finding the right answer, what you need to do is you apply the utilitarian calculus and you save as many lives as possible. You produce as many good things as possible. So with respect to our general questions about intuitions and moral theory, this being an alternative to the reflective equilibrium method you talked about earlier, the question is, okay, but where does this priority of the utilitarian calculus come from? Okay, what is it? Well, it starts with a set of claims about what's good and another claim that you should promote it. What's the status of those claims? Right? Does it come from somewhere completely outside of our intuitions? Here's a terminological complexity. Some of the people who defended these theories a long time ago, who invented them, they actually called the basic claims of utilitarianism intuitions, the self-evident truths right. on which ethics was based. But of course, they didn't think they got to them just by having gut reactions. They think they got to them by thinking jolly hard about all the things they could think about to come up with certain kinds of claims that were absolutely robust. So here's a challenge to the utilitarian, to the people who want to, as it were, undermine standard intuitions, is on what basis do you think the utilitarian calculus that undermines or debunks standard intuitions in the trolley problems, where do you think that gets its authority? Is there some kind of independent access we have to some realm of reason that allows us firm grasp of these axioms and intuitions of utilitarianism so we can use them to throw away or debunk all the rest of it. And of course, unsurprisingly, uh, 
that's what some of the people who defend this sort of view hope for. They hope that there is some kind of independent access we have to a realm of truths. Like some people say, we have access to a realm of eternal truths of logic or eternal truths of mathematics. They think we have access to a set of eternal truths of morality and we grasp them in the same way just by reasoning and reflection. And once we've got them, we can just apply them to the world and then if that doesn't fit with how we intuitively think about things, even after critically reflecting on it and making our beliefs coherent in reflective equilibrium, then so much the worse for reflective equilibrium. So that's the alternative view. Right. But I, uh, as, a, as a distant bystander to, to ethics, get the impression that, as I think maybe you were suggesting, that within various utilitarian traditions, as, as, as if that first step, the, the step of actually doing the normative theorizing, the actual thinking about what is the good that we're, uh, that we're after, and what is that relation of promoting that we're after? Are we seeking to maximize or satisfy? Or is it, is it some other more complicated relation? That, that, that is something that we sort of almost outsource and, and sort of keep quite separate. And once that is out of the way, it really turns into an almost technocratic optimization problem as to how we go about picking those acts or picking those rules that promote, maximize whatever the good in question. Yes. But and, and so you're saying, well, that's well and good, but that first part, it seems like when it comes to that first part, those two things, is it just those two things or am I missing something out? Is, is, it, is it identifying the thing that's good and identifying the proper relation that our acts or rules should stand in? That, that's the actual normative bit where you suggest that we presumably appeal to intuitions of, of some sort. Well, we need some kind of basis for these for these truths, uh, and um, some people think that we do have some completely independent access. Um, often, they draw this analogy with other areas of thought, like logic and mathematics, where you know, as a philosopher of logic and mathematics, that there's actually quite a lot of dispute even in logic and mathematics, about how you justify your basic axioms of certain theories. And there is a view, even within that area of philosophy, that actually the way you ultimately justify them is, do they produce the consequences when you apply them that we can accept? In, yeah. in other words, That's you know, Russell people thought. like Bertrand Russell and others have said, look, you know, ultimately, the axioms explain, they're like a theoretical explanation of why you get to certain things you know are true. They're not, as it were, the foundation for the truth of those things. Uh, and similarly, uh, I think the people who appeal to this independent notion of a, a moral axiom or a moral theory have a, have a uh, you know, they have a task. They have a, they have a question to answer about why, they, why we should think it's anything different in the case of morality. But there's another way, a less sort of abstract way of motivating this, I think, which is um, going back to this analogy from, from Green about the camera. You have these two settings of the camera. You've got the manual setting, which is the utilitarian setting. The, that's the one where you kind of get the light in a certain kind of way and the definition in a certain kind of way. And then you've got the uh, automatic setting, which is the rough and ready one that w works most of the time. Yeah. Okay. Now, here's a question. What makes a good picture? Is it always the case that the best picture is the one that has the highest definition, that has the light in the picture just as you saw the light with your eyes when you looked out the window? Or is it sometimes the case that the best picture is one that perhaps has a slightly distorted light, has a slightly poor definition, in the way that sometimes 
painting someone's face or drawing someone's face in a caricature can be better than when you paint the face as it were, as you saw it on a computer screen. In other words, what makes for the best picture is not necessarily, as it were, accurate in the sense of descriptively accurate. It's a normative question about what makes for the best picture overall. So we can question the assumption behind uh, Green's analogy with the camera about why we should assume that one or the other is the best picture. So are, are, you, are you asking that we, from within a utilitarian or consequentialist framework? No, that's from outside. That's from outside. That's a way of questioning the utilitarian framework. The utilitarian just assumes that when I get a, a camera, the best picture right. is the one that you use manual to get by, you know, getting the light in a certain way, the definition in a certain way. But somebody who's a phot- photographer doesn't take it for granted that it's with a manual setting a certain way that you get the best picture. Right. I mean, some of the best pictures are, if you if you like, in a certain kind of way, heavily distorted pictures. So here's a way of putting it in the ethical case. The, the utilitarian thinks that the right answer must be the one that gives us a clean, unitary, calculating and precise way of deciding every question in terms of the outcomes it has. Right? That's, that's what they prefer. And then the question is, why should that be the thing we prefer? Right. It got me a little bit confused is because obviously there there is this long-standing problem within consequentialism and the way you, I suppose you might put it in in on the green picture is that it might be the case that because the manual setting is so costly in terms of battery power like mm. performing all those calculations in order to get the picture just right might be so costly that trying to do it right <laughs> i mean I, I guess the metaphor is is, is, is getting a little uh, belabored there mm. but if, if if we try to act in such a way consciously and trying to calculate the consequences. It, it might just be because our cognitive limitations, by and large, when we try to do that, we perform worse by the standards of utilitarianism than we would if we allowed ourselves to take some kind of shortcut, right? Some kind of rule of thumb, which by and large just perform better. Standard utilitarians maintain that ordinary folk should just go about using folk ethical principles because by and large that approximates the good as defined in the utilitarian framework rather well. And again, there, any attempt of actually trying to calculate the consequences would just, would just lead to worse outcomes. So, but that's, that, that's not what you're trying to say. You're, 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 no. you're questioning the, the entire normative framework whereby what is right, what a good picture is, is defined by, uh, defined in relation to the good. You, you can just basically you can question the entire framework and oppose it to a different framework that would give you a different kind of outcome as to what a good picture is. Absolutely. So what you've said about uh, how it's very costly to get, as it were, the maximum definition and the absolutely the right color, et cetera, et cetera, in a picture, that's very sympathetic to the utilitarian view. And that's the sort of thing that utilitarians, including Green and Singer and others who support this view, that's the sort of thing they will say as to explain as to as to why as to explain why it is that we have the intuitions we do and why in some senses we should probably keep on having them most of the time it's just that they will sometimes do give us the wrong answer like in the footbridge case but the 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 challenge i was face i was presenting was a much much stronger one it was that um when they say that they're making an assumption about what the right answer is 
which uh, is question-begging uh, against those who know that that is what they say, but who, who are basically using their own moral reflections to ask whether that is really the right answer in these particular cases, using not just their gut reactions, their intuitions and all the other things they believe, trying to put them into a coherent picture. So going back again for the final time to the camera, it's a little bit like saying that the utilitarian is a person with a color camera who says to someone who's still taking pictures in black and white that they're a crap photographer because the world's got colors. Right. And the black and white photographer says, yeah, I know the world has colors, <laughs> but I take better pictures in black and white. <laughs> right. I have one more question about the green picture. So, I mean, obviously, this is a kind of extension of the system one, system two distinction that, right, to, to, to the ethical realm that is well known in cognitive psychology, which was made famous by Kahneman and, and Tversky, whereby system one is, is, is the sort of more quasi-automatic level of cognition, which is pretty much effortless and which happens underneath the surface of conscious experience. And the and system two is the is the much more effortful conscious level where we actually try to to reason and to get it right. And if I if I remember Green's picture right, roughly he sort of maps the utilitarian a broadly utilitarian picture onto system two. That is, if we actually make the effort and we think very carefully and reflectively about these matters, we'll turn out to reason in a utilitarian fashion, and our system one, the, the rough and ready ethical picture, would correspond to a, a broadly sort of deontological picture. And does he also, in that context, appeal there to the neuroscientific findings to the effect that, that our deontological intuitions are correlated with basically the areas in the brain that, that are associated with emotional responses? Is, is, is that a, all part of the same package, or am I throwing together different stories? No, absolutely. I mean, Green and his colleagues are people who do you know, brain imaging and map on people's responses uh, to various bits of brain activity. So the claim is that when you have a deontological anti-killing response in the footbridge case, the bits of your brain that are firing are the bits of the brain that are associated with emotional life and uh, you know, those kinds of systems that, that are, as it were, rough and ready, automatic. And when you're calculating consequences, which you're always doing on this view, there's always some element of that going on. So we don't forget about the consequence in the footbridge case. It's just that we're overwhelmed by uh, our emotions. It's the more calculating the other system that's working. So there's, a, there's definitely a, not just a consistency, but an evidential relationship between right. these two things. The difference, I think, between uh, the, the moral psychology uh, of trolley problems and the like, um, and the dual process view of green, and the system one, system two research by people like Kahneman and Tversky and so on, is that there's a sense in which in the, in the, in the basic cases that people talk about in Kahneman and Tversky, it's people kind of being... They're getting themselves entangled in their reasoning by using one system rather than another so that they make certain kinds of, as it were, let's call them less controversially mistaken judgments, right? So they, they end up making mistakes, things that kind of makes the machinery of life yeah. not work very well, right? 
So you make you make you make wrong probabilistic judgments. You 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 overestimate certain types of of predictions, and that that, that doesn't happen, and all those sorts of things. And and that's kind of one shouldn't be too simplistic about this thing, but there's a sense in which that kind of be sort of can be descriptively operationalized in a stuff in a way that you can sort of more or less uncontroversially say, look, the person who relies too much on this automa- automated stuff, they'll just go wrong. And we can show that again and again, and that has various types of social effects. In the case of the moral, in the moral example of the person who has strongly deontological intuitions, there isn't any kind of way of being on the hook in the same sort of way. Because what the person does who is guided by the system, the automated system, the deontological system in the moral case, what they're doing is that they're not sort of falling over. They're saying, I'll switch, but I'm not going to push the fat man. <laughs> and then you say, "Oh, yeah, but th- but then but then you're not, you know, making the world as good as you can in the in the in the impartial perspective." Yes, I know that. Right, right, <laughs> right. I mean, but I mean, in in both cases, right, even in, in in the cases of cognitive psychology, where people make mistakes in their logical reasoning or their statistical reasoning or with respect to their decision making, in each of those cases, of course, you need some kind of normative standard, right? You need some standard by which we all agree that the correct answer in this problem, right, is this decision problem sure. or in this yes, probabilistic yes. puzzle, whatever, yes, is yes. such and such. <laughs> we can see that the performance of most people deviates from that. So now we want a theory that mm. explains that. And yeah, but as, as you're saying, there's, there's, there's the idea however justified, because there too, it's actually more controversial than it's often made out to be. But there, there's at mm. least the thought that, well, there, we know what the correct answer is, and therefore we can measure, uh, as it were, the divergence between the uh, subjects in the experiments that are getting it wrong with respect to that benchmark. And mm. yeah, of, of course, it, 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 uh, applying that same model in the case of ethics, prejudges the game, and of, of course, by just simply presupposing that utilitarianism gives you the right answer, right, can play the role of that normative benchmark, and just relegates deontological reasoning to system one reasoning, which in many situations is extremely helpful and and, and useful, but which which of which we can easily tell that it's that it's off the mark by and large. So nothing here is, you know, completely uncontroversial, but it's worth worth bearing in mind the following two things. The first is that um, the fact that certain outcomes are max or are, are, are uh, optimal from a purely impartial perspective, whatever that means, uh, but will not be produced by people, say, being partial towards their family or friends, or not wanting to kill people by pushing them over footbridges or whatever. You know, the fact that there is this conflict has been known. For a very long time, and philosophers have argued about it for hundreds of years, it's not as if somebody suddenly came along and discovered that fact, and then people said, oh shit, there must be something wrong with our moral reasoning. Right? So the, if you like, the experimental setup, the epistemic situation of the theorizers is very, very different in the moral case. You know, One can't famously said that the only thing that's good without qualification is a goodwill. It wasn't because he was ignorant about what was going to produce the, 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 the greatest good overall considering, you know, the, the distribution of pleasures on the planet. That, that he, he probably would have said, yes, I'm, I'm aware of that, you know, and then he'll give you a story about why that's not how we should think about it. Maybe there are such stories in the kind of uh, scenarios that Kahneman and Tversky and others have studied, but it's less obviously, obviously what they should be. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, are there people who are, as it were, paradigmatic reasoners in the utilitarian calculating way 
who don't have these deontological uh, deontological strongly emotional reactions towards things like pu- pushing the person off the footbridge. There's something slight. At least, I mean, I'm not saying conclusive against anything. Is that there's something slightly strange about the idea that a person who kind of has can de- can tone down their emotional perception of what is and is not appropriate in certain circumstances to that extent is somehow in, in some sense maybe the most virtuous person you could imagine i mean that can't that can't be right there's something slightly funny about that i'm not saying it's a it's a knockdown objection but it would be it would be easier i think to be sympathetic to the utilitarian view if you came across people who thought like utilitarians acted like utilitarians reasoned like utilitarians and we held them up as paradigms of virtues rather than thought of them as what's now yeah. called psychopaths. It's, it's actually funny that you should say that. Um, um, David Pizarro, who's a psychologist at Cornell and who actually has a, a really nice podcast um, with Tamara Summers called Very Bad Wizards. Um, he was actually talking about how he was teaching classes in a prison. He, he's up there in up, upstate New York. And he actually had one of the prisoners who was, who was sitting on the classes completely unable, n- n- not just to accept and to agree with, but to see the difference between letting die in the killing cases. So that there, there really seems to be something to that. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not a knockdown argument because you might say, look, again, going back to the camera, you might say that from a utilitarian perspective, we need the automatic setting, the emotional, the ontological setting, because of the cost of doing all the calculating. So the, the psychopath, the person who doesn't have any emotional responses of this nature, uh, is not the paradigm of virtue because in order for them to be a paradigm of virtue, you have to give them so much more computing power in order for them to be able to you know, see what was really the optimal outcome. That's a way that you might go. But again, it, it does put us in a, in, a, in, a, in a slightly different epistemic position with respect to whether or not this is the way we want to go ahead and think Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. So there's there's one more thing in that area that I, I often ask myself. So l- let's consider this, this idea that these findings based on these neuroimaging studies. So let's assume that it is the case that whenever that, that my deontological coarse grained intuitions are associated with particular emotional reactions, let's say I with disgust or something like that, or anger, does that show, did, must that necessarily undermine my judgments, and of course the, this goes into in, in your paper on the epistemology of uh, ethical intuitions, but in particular I was wondering why must we assume that the direction of the causal error, arrow, <laughs> rather than error, uh, of the causal arrow is such that we must assume that it's the emotional reaction that drives the intuition, which therefore is not a considered one and therefore is not a reliable one, why, why, why couldn't it be that simply my strong ethical reaction, which might be robust and well considered, triggers an emotional reaction that the causal, you know, the arrow, the causal arrow just points in the in the other direction, which, which wouldn't seem to to compromise the standing of the, of my intuitions at all, is that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so there is there is quite a lot of uh, work has been done on that, not by philosophers, but by again by by psychologists, including uh, Jonathan Haidt and, and others, about uh, around about twenty years ago now, uh, which which suggests that um, by and large uh, you find that emotional reactions uh, are causally prior to 
what we think of as considered judgment. So the idea is that very often when we make moral judgments about things, we are rationalizing uh, an emotional reaction that we may not even be particularly aware of that we've had. So various experiments were undertaken, for example, uh, about the the famous incest taboo, uh, where they described a a couple of siblings who had sex on a summer holiday and everything was fine. They forgot about and got on with their lives and it was written into the case that they were none of the usual things that people are worried about with incest. And then they asked people, do you think this was okay? And a lot of people said, it's not okay. And then they asked them why and they came up with the sort of things that they had written into the into the example that weren't actually the case. So it looks like they were post hoc rationalizing a, a feeling. Now, in that research work, I'm not sure if, it's, uh, if, if it was... Um, uh, meant seriously, or whether it was just like a like a fig leaf to the philosophers, it was suggested that, that there might be subgroups of people or parts of our lives in which we actually are able to to cope with this in a in a certain kind of way, and maybe some people, including philosophers, are better at it than others. So it's not ruled out, as it were, a priori or necessarily that we're able to do this. But there is a certain amount of evidence that the causal arrow very often will go from the emotion to the judgment. So that's why it's very important to ask oneself, what are the conditions? Uh, when the causal history of your uh, judgment undermines that judgment in virtue of being the history of, that it is, uh, and when is when doesn't it matter? Because it seems qu- quite obvious to me anyway that there are certain situations in which you would worry about the causal history of um, your judgment. For example, if somebody has told you a lie and you're making it because you're, you have a false belief, uh, about the situation, or somebody is uh, manipulating you to have a certain view because it suits them, and you discover that, you know, that, that would make me start thinking, I would at least start thinking again. But there are other situations in which it doesn't really bother me at all. I mean, lots of trivial cases where I may have decided to buy, you know, one chocolate rather than another in the shop, or one toothpaste rather than another in the shop, and it may be all sorts of ridiculous reasons why I bought one toothpaste rather than another toothpaste. And if somebody tells me that, I think, I don't give a shit. I just bought that toothpaste. What's the big deal? So there are certain situations in which the causal history does matter, and when it doesn't. And here is a way of thinking about it intuitively. I've been thinking about this recently and writing about it. There's a sense in which the worrying causal stories is ones in which once you hear it, you kind of feel that you've been made a fool of either by other people or by yourself or by nature right because nobody likes to be made a fool of and i think sometimes the causal history of our judgments including a moral judgment are such that we feel we've been made a fool of for example suppose you're in a in a very hierarchical structure like in an institution or in a community and you walk around believing that the people who, who rule the roost really are smarter than everyone else and then you realize that you only believe that because they've been telling you since you were two years old. Then you've been made a fool of. And so you start wondering, okay, did, uh, do I have any really good reasons for believing they're smarter than me? Or is it just because they told me since I was two years old? That's being made a fool of. And there are other respects in which you may, you may not think you've been made a fool of. You know, suppose, so take a trivial example about you know, all human beings, we, we tend to, to, to reproduce and have families and, you know, exist across generations. There may be all sorts of reasons for that, which have to do with our biology and our evolutionary history. But when I learn about that evolutionary history, I don't feel I've been made a fool of. I just think, oh, that's interesting. That's why it is. And that, you know, carry on pretty much as I was before. I think to, um, perhaps to, to close things off, do you, do you want to say anything? Can you foreshadow? If not, we can... We can edit this. Can you? Do you want to tell us something about the volume that you're editing on trolley problems and trolleyology? Yeah. So 
the trolley problem was uh, first articulated by Philip Foote in 1967. And so people have been working on it for, you know, a lifetime. And there's now a, a vi- wide variety of areas in which people write about it. They write about it in, in moral theory, moral philosophy. There's work on it in social psychology. People write about it in other parts of social science. Um, there's more and more talk about trolley-like situations and when it comes to AI and automa- automation. So, for example, driverless cars and, um, you know, drone warfare and all sorts of things like that. So there's now a, such a, a wide variety of, of areas of thought where uh, this example is being used and theorized about in different ways. And, and there are, you know, there's movies and films and TV programs and games and videos and God knows what that deal with it. So it's become a bit of a, a cultural trope. Uh, so one of the things that I'm doing uh, uh, along with Cambridge University Press is bringing together some of the most prominent people who've been writing about this in these various areas, philosophy and social sciences and psychology, and uh, getting them to write some chapters about where they think, uh, how they think things stand now after a lifetime of people writing about the trolley problem. So hopefully this book will come out in 2021-22, and uh, it's very exciting to be a part of it. Uh, And uh, I can... I can't say exactly how things are going to look once it's all done, but I can be pretty sure that uh, the issue is going to be just as controversial as it was uh, when we started. <laughs> well, that's reassuring, but uh, we're all very grateful for you to t- take on that <laughs> tremendous task. Anybody who's ever tried it knows that editing a volume is not the most thankful of tasks, but it's uh, it's, it's all the more appreciated. And uh, that, that sounds like a really interesting interdisciplinary effort. Good. Well, let's call it a day. Okay. <laughs>